Good morning, everybody. Glad you made it back, and uh, thanks for the opportunity again to speak to you. And um, you, they are bigger than last time. They're the the other ones got replaced. Those ones that were here are now in the other room, the bigger room, which is ironic because they have smaller TVs in the bigger room. But but that's how it worked out. So hopefully you have no problem seeing this morning, um, seeing around my big wide body. I'll try to not block that. All right, well, let's go ahead and um, we don't have a specific text for opening to immediately this morning, but we're going to be looking at various texts. So you want to get your Bible ready to be doing some flipping around. I'm going to throw some verses up on the screen as well to kind of help us track in our progress. Last week when we got together, I had promised you that we would start to talk about how to change and just to kind of get real practical. And uh, I had hoped to do that this week, but as I got further in, the preparation of that lesson, I realized I still think I need to go back and shore up one more week, a foundational understanding of how sanctification actually works. Because if we don't get clarity and get solidified on that piece, you're not going to understand how to use the, how, how to practice godly sanctification or what to expect when you're looking to change behavior biblically. So uh, this is going to be the kind of the wrap up of last week's message and then Next week will be how to change biblically. So we will get down to um, practical matters very quickly next couple of weeks. So, so um, as we began to see at the end of our last class together, there was a whole lot of confusion. There is a whole lot of confusion about the doctrine of sanctification in the church at large uh, because sanctification is an essential part of your Christian life and that we are called to progress toward holiness, it's no wonder that confusion can be perpetuated and cause Christians to do, I think, one of four things. I had showed you, um, basically here, I showed you this example of like what's available today to Christians interested in growing. If you go to the Christian growth section of your local bookstore, this is what you're going to find. And uh, every one of these books is going to give you a different method, a different approach, a different philosophy, a different doctrine altogether, really, of how sanctification actually comes about in your life. And as you can see, most of it is oriented towards who? Me. Self. self. It's all about self. Living a life you love or become a better you. Uh, this, is what, this is what basically masquerades under the banner of sanctification teaching today. Um, the Circle Maker, Jesus Calling, these are types of books that are all written for the purpose of trying to get you to think you just need to do, do better, try harder, you need to think positive, you need to confess your destiny, you need to do these sorts of mystical sorts of practices, sorts of practices and that this is how God brings about the sanctification work in your life. And unfortunately, uh, this is what these books sell, 100 to 1, the really good books on sanctification, which is, is sad. So I think it's important, and we're seeing it today, I think pastors agree everywhere that churches need a good teaching on sanctification. So we've tried to major on that. There's a lot of contemporary confusion, and this is what you'll see as a result. Maybe you have noticed this as well. You'll see that uh, no, no wonder the confusion that is perpetuated is causing Christians to become prone to be paralyzed by the power of sin. There seems to be no prevailing victory over sin patterns. They just continue, to, no matter what you do, no matter how much you, you pray and you just kind of confess victory and you just uh, you sit there and you wait for God to give you an experience of deliverance there just seems to be no 
victory over a pattern of sin. And that's sad because Scripture clearly tells us that that experience is a reality for the Christian. When you understand God's way and his, his grace, gracious means for uh, remedying that. You see, Christians can become perfectionist, believing that sin holds no threat to them. You think, who would believe that you can become perfectionist? Does anybody in here ever met anybody who believes in perfectionism? Well, maybe uh, those, those teachings tend to migrate right around like a holiness-type movement or a sometimes charismatic or Pentecostal uh, groups can, can hold to that in some cases. But this idea that sin is entirely eradicated from your life. When you got saved, he took away your capacity for sin. And that's a sad, that's a sad way of thinking. And it's based on some misunderstandings of scriptures that we're going to look at this morning. So that's a terrible place to be. If you think you're perfection, you're perfectionist, then you basically ignore the sins that you know are, are there in your life. Or I think thirdly, and this is very prominent, especially in our circles, is you become, I call, passion-pursuing. Or you just seek an experience. You're experience-seeking. You're looking for the next big spiritual buzz that's going to kind of catapult you into another level of experience for, in the Christian life. You're just looking for that next revival meeting. You're looking for that next baptism of the Holy Spirit, the next full and fresh anointing of, of God. And you're just looking for this experience that's just going to be a shortcut to sanctification. And that's unfortunately where a lot of Christians live today. Or you become presumptuous and say, I'm just going to, by my own sheer grit and determination, dig down deep, and by my own self-will and determination, I'm just going to try harder and fight this sin in the flesh and fail to use spiritual weaponry to do the job. So I think that that's where you see a broad spectrum, a cross-section of the Christian church today is kind of snared in this false doctrine, false teachings on on sanctification. Last week we talked about um, the catalyst of sanctification, what what commences it? What causes it to start? Do you remember what we talked about? What, what causes your sanctification to begin? And when does it begin? Do you recall from looking last week? Uh, any ideas? When does sanctification begin from the scriptures? Justification, okay. Good. Yes, that's right. That's where we left off was justification. Now, I'm going to suggest that justification is is a part of your overall sanctification. Sanctification actually reaches even further back than your justification. It goes, it's tied to your election before the foundations of the world. He, call, he called you to be holy and blameless before him in love. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4? Romans 8, 29 says, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. When did he do that predestination act? Well, it was before you even breathed your first breath of air. Before you even lived, God was already in his mind fixed and determined that he was going to sanctify you. So that means sanctification is a larger arc of God's work in your life. And justification and salvation, all of those are fixed moments in time when God punctuates his actions of sanctification in your life. So sanctification is a broader idea, okay? So everything fits under this idea of sanctification. God cleansing and purifying setting apart for himself a people for his glory has been his redemptive purpose throughout history. So the catalyst is, your sanctification doesn't begin with your, your moment of crisis, your, your crisis of faith, or some emotional experience at a revival meeting, or 
or some fresh anointing or some period of intense contemplation where you just really get serious with God and you go forward and you do business with him in an altar or something. That's not when your sanctification commences. It's already been at play and at work in the providence of God over the duration of your entire life. Um, isn't it interesting, and in, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians where it talks about an unsaved, husband, an unsaved spouse married to a saved um, uh, spouse, that they should remain together in marriage. If they're pleased to dwell together, they do that because in that action, their children are sanctified in that union, even though there's an, un, even though there's an unequal yoke there. How can that be possibly how can that be possible for us to think about that? Well, it's because God is doing a sanctification work. That doesn't mean that those people are, those kids are automatically saved. It means that God is doing a cleansing and purifying work by means of that union, even with that Christian, one Christian influence in the home. So sanctification is all about God's purification, his cleansing, his making us holy in a process of time, over a progress of your lifetime. So, uh, so that was the catalyst of sanctification. Remember, it's tied back to your election. It's tied back to your predestination. All before you even came to Christ, the purpose of God was to make you holy. Did you know that when you got saved? When you, when you, went for, when you trusted Christ as Savior, did you know that his purpose was to clean you up, to transform you, to make you a new creature? That's been the intention for the whole point. He didn't save you so you can just sign a decision card, raise a hand, Go forward, make a profession of faith, and go back to your sinful life unchanged. He, Jesus never met anyone who he did not transform. Okay? The transforming work of God is operative in your life. Now you say, well, that's comforting. That means that sanctification doesn't require, I don't, re, I don't require anything more than I've already received to become sanctified. And that's right. So you don't have to sit there and wait for God to give you a sign or God to give you some special grace or help to do this. It's something you already have access to, which is a great blessing. Number three, uh, the, or number two, characterization of sanctification is what we're going to talk about today. How is, what is the nature of this thing? What does the Bible, how does it describe its character and how it works? Thirdly, next week we'll talk about the cultivation of it. And by that I mean, how do you grow this thing? How do you mature this uh, growth in Christ? How do you cultivate it? And then lastly, how do you know you've been sanctified? What's the confirmation of it? What's the is it that I speak in tongues and I have this ecstatic experience or is it uh, that I just somehow cease from all desires of sin and I never have it to struggle with temptation anymore? What is the actual confirmation of sanctification? Because quite honestly, you, you, are, you may grow discouraged if you think that at some point you're going to reach a, reach a point in your time where you just the switch flips and you no longer struggle like you always have. The reality is it's God's design and sanctification that we always battle sin. It's, a, it's going to be a warfare to the very end. It's going to be something we battle, and it's something that God has designed us to do that so that we become completely humble and dependent on God's effectual grace working his work in our lives. So we're going to look at confirmations. What are the evidences of sanctification at the end? But today, let's look at the characterization of sanctification. All right, number one, I'm going to use a classic outline that I'm sure you've probably heard, um, but it's so helpful to keep these, keep these things separate and keep these, uh, keep these ideas clear, because if they don't get clear and you start overlapping these different categories of sanctification, you're going to start thinking that something that God has planned for you in the future is you're supposed to be your experience now, or something that happened in the past means that you don't have to struggle in the present 
it's going to get confusing if you don't keep these categories very distinct and clear as Scripture sets them forth for you. So we're going to look at three categories of sanctification from the Scripture. You've got to pay attention to these verses because the distinctions here are, are all based on the tense of a verb. How do you like to... He's ever thought that grammar class you took back in sixth grade is going to come in handy. Well, this is going to help you, okay? You're going to look at some grammar this morning, and you're going to see God's plan for how he works out sanctification. Number one, first of all, we need to understand is our positional sanctification. This is what uh, Caleb was mentioning with reference to when we became justified in Christ. Something changed about our status. We changed positionally. By a definite act of God, whereby we are no longer sinners, but we have, in that moment of justification, he purifies us and sanctifies us and cleanses us positionally in Christ. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden we cease from sin practically, but our position has changed. So there's a couple times in scripture where sanctification is obviously being used and described in this type of language. Let me first show you how it's used how sanctification in the scripture sometimes is called salvation. I'm going to explain why, why scripture does that. Sanctification is often described in salvation language. Now, sanctification is the ongoing work of God in saving us. God saved us. We can say this appropriately, that God did save us in the past when we came to Christ. We trusted him. We repented from our sins and came to him in faith. And he did indeed save us. That's an event. But there's also, it's also appropriate to say that God is continually saving us. We are in a process of salvation, and that's appropriate to say in scriptural terms. I'm going to show you that. In, in, fact, in fact, if you want to take your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. So God is doing a continuing work of cleansing and purification that sometimes he calls salvation. It's a present work. Okay? God's doing this all over the course of your lives to fashion you into his ho- to, according to his holiness. And it's interesting to look at the Bible as it characterizes this sanctification in this way. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, looking at that word, what word is, is highlighted here? Is the word salvation. Now, Paul's saying this in the middle of Philippians chapter 2. You have to understand how jarring this is, given if you've read any of the other works that Paul has written throughout the book of Romans and the rest of his prison epistles. Salvation is not something that comes to us by merits of our work, does it? It comes to us on the merits of Christ's work, his finished work. So for him to say, work out your salvation, would make him, if, you, if you're thinking in terms of salvation comes by value of you're doing good things and you're doing good deeds or being a decent person, you're going to be, this verse stands squarely in odds against everything else in scripture. So we have to say, is Paul saying something different or do we need to adjust our understanding of how he's describing what's going on here? I think we need to adjust here. He's not saying work for your salvation with fear and trembling. Praise the Lord. We can never work. To, be, we would definitely be fear and trembling to, find our, to try to work for our salvation. None of us could be perfect enough to merit the salvation of God. But he does say work out your salvation. Now, that's interesting. What is implied by this? What's being, what's being said by this? 
Well, he's saying the salvation that you have should be worked out in your life. It's something that should be made demonstrated and made evident, made apparent in your actions and in your lifestyle. So you work it out. You express it. You find ways to, uh, to uh, allow the sanctification, the, the work of God's salvation in your life to be made evident in the fruitfulness of your life. So it's a, something you do, and it's done out of a motivation of fear towards God. Not that you would lose your salvation, but a fear that, that is a reverence and a, uh, a worship towards God and with trembling. Okay? So in other words, it's something we take great concern and great care for, don't we? Spend a lot of time thinking about how do we practice sanctification? How do we work out our, this salvation act, this salvation work in our life? Okay? So you see salvation referred here in being used for sanctification. You see it in other places too. 1 Corinthians 1.18, another verse that's very interesting. It says, Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Boy, isn't that true? Preaching the cross seems to be offensive and seems to be just completely unacceptable today. Um, people who see that see that's a that there's there's no power in it. They they don't see any usefulness in that. They think it's foolish that we believe such a a thing. And yet, Paul assures us here that it is but to us this preaching of the word, the word of the cross, is to us who are being saved. It is the power of Christ. It's the power of God. I mean, the power of God. Interesting, he's saying that we are ones characterized as being saved here. Does that imply that there is an ongoing, continuous work of salvation that God's called, calling here? Now, that's what I'm talking about, sanctification. Sanctification is God's ongoing work of making you ready and fit for heaven. Okay? Practically speaking. Okay? If you were to drop dead right now, positionally... You're, you are fully clean and pure before Christ. Okay? You're going to go, you'll be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. But in the process of your lifetime here, there is an ongoing, continuous work of being saved. This is uncomfortable language for us Protestants to use and us Bible believers to use. But nonetheless, when you read it and encounter it in Scripture, we have to understand he's talking about this sanctification work. It's used again in another passage in 2 in second Corinthians, this time, chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. Paul says, we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? So once again, that language of a present action, a present ongoing action of God. So that's what's being referred to here when we see these things. Uh, God's salvation work worked out presently through a progressive cleansing and purifying of your life. Does that make sense? It's kind of difficult to keep that separate and to think about that in that category, but Paul often calls us to remember that, listen, we, are, we have been saved positionally from the penalty of our sins, and in the present, we're being saved from the power of sin. Okay? We're going to look at the distinction in that very clear, carefully in just a minute. But this present passive participle that creates this idea of being saved, indicates an ongoing divine work of God, delivering us from the bondage and enslavement of sin. Since you have become saved, you have been given a new power over sin that you never had before. Before you were saved, you were a slave of sin. You had a, you had a desire for sin. You had, to, you had no ability to resist sin's 
um, domination in your life. But after salvation, Christ broke the power and dominion of sin over your life and equipped you with the ability to resist, to flee, and to uh, fight temptation. So there's a new kind of situation here in our present state. So we'll, we'll examine that in a little bit more. There are lots of more scriptures. If you want to look at this in more detail, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us that we have been, um, we've been elected unto salvation through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. We've elected to salvation. How? By means of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit work is doing that. So um, other verses are, are 1 Peter 1, 2. Um, this is all characterized by the same idea. This is not just a New Testament idea. In Ezekiel chapter 36, you'll know that chapter because that's the, one of the wonderful New Covenant chapters where it talks about God's desire to place the Spirit of God into the hearts of man, to take out the old stony heart and put in a heart of flesh, the one that is inclined to do the will of God. Well, how does that come about? Well, that's coming about by the sanctification of God's work in the heart. And so this idea is not a new idea. It's just simply um, picked up here in, by Paul in the New Testament and carried out and explained much more clearly. So the survey of the doctrine of sanctification, we're talking about the characterization of sanctification. First of all, we understand we have a position that's changed. Positionally, status, right now, you're seated with Christ in the heavens. You are positionally clean and pure before God to be presented before him as holy and blameless without, without any fault. It's amazing to think that simultaneously while you sit here this morning, you are also seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You think, that defies physics. How can I be in two places at one time? I don't know how to answer that question, but spiritually we accept these things as truth and fact. So you are positionally in Christ, saved from the penalty of your sin. There's no one in here who knows Christ and has been saved who will ever fear the standing of judgment for the sins that you committed because those sins were completely taken care of and, and atoned for in the work of Christ. So you can say, I'm positionally sanctified. That doesn't mean I'm entirely sanctified, but I'm positionally sanctified. Now, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, tells us about this position that has been fixed and firm for you. Okay, These are precious verses that tell us about the act of God already accomplished in your sanctification. This is all reference to your position. For by one offering, Christ has perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. Okay? You were perfected already in sanctification. How? By one offering. So, in a sense, at the cross of Christ, not only what's happening there is the forgiveness of your sin, but something radically and fundamentally different is changing about your status. You're moved from a child of the world, a servant of sin, now to being a child of God, a servant to righteousness, You are sanctified and made pure at the cross, positionally. And the rest of your life now is trying to live out and be be what you already are. Okay? That's the, we say it around here, that's caught in the middle between the already and not yet. (laughs) We say that all the time here. All we're meaning by that is there are truths that are true, they are fixed in position, and they they are uh, axiomatically right. We just have to live them out pragmatically and practically. And we're doing that in the process of this life. But we're, you see this idea of perfection appear. This is where that idea, I told you before, some Christians get confused. You'll see the word perfected appears in a lot of these verses. 
What does it mean that we are perfected? Does that mean we are suddenly we lose the taste for the world, we lose the taste for sin, and we just become this uber spiritual people who have just no carnal, no carnal inclinations whatsoever. <clears throat> totally give up. I have no love for the world, and I just live apart, detached. Is that how this? Is that what's meant by this idea of perfection? No. The word perfect, perfect in the Greek means mature. Someone who's in a process of maturity, growing even. So you, this is not an idea that you have been entirely sanctified. It just means that you have been positionally sanctified initially by Christ's work and that you're progressing and perfected in complete, completeness in maturity over time. Okay? So you'll see this idea of sanct- perfection and sanctification. Don't get that confused. It just means your sanctification means you're in a process of maturing. There's a growth happening here. Any new thing grows, right? Any, any living thing has growth, okay? If you're li- alive in Christ, you should be growing. You should be changing. And uh, that is perfection happening, okay? Or uh, scripture terms, that's how they call it, perfection, maturity. So look at this. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, Such were some of you. Remember the, um, in 1 Corinthians 6, he lists a whole host of perhaps sins we would find on the spectrum of being just too a horrible to even contemplate. You were once this type of sinner, and now you once were that, but now, he says, but, he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So, <clears throat> grammar experts, as you're looking here, what is this? When did this? What does this signify, this tense of this verb? You were sanctified. Is this a past action, a present action, or something yet to be fulfilled in the future? Were? Sanctified. This is a past participle, right? Something you happened in the past. When did that happen? Well, it happened when you came to Christ. When you, when you came to faith, you were sanctified. You're not awaiting this event. It's not something out ahead of you that you must reach out after and grab for. It's already happening. So you see that um, very clearly in the grammar here so <clears throat> very uh helpful statement made here i can't remember where i got this uh quote but sanctification therefore we need to think of sanctification this way sanctification very often in the scriptures is not chiefly just reforming your external behavior but a miraculous inward transformation of your affections so yes you're sanctified you are um yet you still sin well, I guess some of the old reformers used to say, Samuel Eustis et peccator, meaning I'm justified, I'm simultaneously justified and yet sinful. <laughs> You're still righteous, and yet practically you still have battles with sin. This is our state in this life that we have before us. And sanctification doesn't mean you just clean up the outside. That's what Pharisees do. They wash the outside of the cup. They whitewash the grave. Uh, they try to make the outward appealing, try to put off an air and present themselves as righteous than, more righteous than they really are. That's not sanctification. That's a defective sanctification. Christ's sanctification instead begins in the inner heart. He changes the heart and <clears throat> gives you a different effect, affection, different loves. So that the life of so, you, so the so sin is not taken away, but the love for sin is starting. It's been diminished. You start to love sin less and less, don't you? As a Christian, don't you hate your sin? Don't you detest it and despise it and 
and, and, and wish that you could be free from that? Well, where does that come from? That's not something that was inborn in you in the natural man. That came out of a spiritual rebirth. God put a new heart in you to change your affections so that now you long for things. You love uh, righteousness. You long for the things of God. That didn't happen as a characteristic of your fallen man. That's your new man that is now in operation in your life. Okay? Um, great quote here by Charles Hodge, good uh, systematic theology writer here, an excellent man, uh, wrote, writes this. Sanctification does not consist exclusively in a series of new kinds of acts. When we preach sanctification here, we're not going to just issue you a list with your membership packet of here's some new items of things you need to be doing. Hey, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Here's the check boxes next to them so you can check them off. <clears throat> That's not sanctification, just going through a new series of actions. Instead, sanctification is making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. God's work in you works in the inner essence of your life to change the character of who you are. So that regeneration is not an act, it says here, as yet regeneration is not an act of the subject of the work, but in the language of the Bible, a new birth, a new creation, a quickening or making alive, a communicating of a new life. So sanctification is, in its essential nature is not holy acts, but such a change in the state of the soul. God did a transforming work at the moment of your, at the moment of your salvation. You say, well, I don't see it visibly working out entirely in my life. No, it's not entirely there. It is new, but it's not entirely new yet. It's coming. You're on the road to glory, remember? So you've begun something. God, God has begun a work that he will see through unto the day of his coming. And the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6. So we're confident of this very thing, he says. <clears throat> so that sinful acts become less or become more infrequent and holy acts become more habitual and controlling. Sinlessness is not something you can aspire to be in this life. You will not ever be sinless, but by God's grace and the operation of sanctification, you will sin less. Okay, You're not sinless, but you will, in the process of growth and time, sin less and less because God has effected a change in this essential state and character of your soul. So we've looked at the position of sanctification. In the past, we are free from the penalty of our sin. We don't have to fear hell. Will not fear dam- uh, damnation or condemnation of God. All of that was absorbed in the body of Christ on the tree of Calvary, and we are free from the penalty of our sin. So we in Christ have a position. Okay, number two, progressive sanctification. Sanctification often in the scriptures is not just defined as an event in the past, such as the case we just looked at, but secondly, it's saw- seen as a progress something progressing in our lives. Okay? Um, so, lots of verses about this. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, what promises? Everything we've discussed. You have these promises of justification and faith. By, through Christ, he's made you cleansed. Now that he's made you sanctified, sanctified, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, couple things here. Who's to own the responsibility of sanctification here? Who's the active agent in your sanctification? Who's doing that now? Ourselves, right? We are obligated to pursue this thing and to cleanse ourselves from defilement of flesh and spirit. 
And by doing that, we mature in holiness. We perfect holiness in the fear of God. So is this something you can do in a moment, in an event in your life? No, it's a process and a progress. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 4 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So here the point of this is that, once again, God's will is that you, by abstaining from sexual immorality, by possessing your vessel, your, this body that God has given to you, by possessing it as a steward of his grace, you practice sanctification and honor in your life. Okay? And you seek to be pure and holy and clean before God. So you're not checked out in the process, are you? You're not just sitting here kicking back to glory and you're just going to ride it on out and have nothing further to do. There are some, impl- there are some clear indications here that you are involved in this process. God's doing a work, and because he's working, you're working. So <clears throat> Romans 6.19 says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So there's a lot of verses like this. I have a ton up here, and I'm going to just um, give you the references for you to look up if you'd like. Romans 6.22, another indication that your work in righteousness produces sanctification, fruitful, fruitful sanctification. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you know the idea of being transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Who's doing that? Who's responsible for that? You are. You are. You're responsible for that. So you don't get to check out on God, say, God, you know, you're supposed to be cleaning me up, and I'm just going to just wait for you to do that action, and I'm just going to kick back here, arms folded, and relax until you do that. No, you have a responsibility. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification is required for you to be able to see the Lord, right? How is that done? We pursue peace. We pursue sanctification. We embrace the work of God in our lives and desire to cultivate that growth and maturity. We'll talk about that next week. How do I change? How do I embrace what's going on in my life, what God's trying to accomplish, and how do I fuel that? How do I work that out in my life so that I can see the fruit of change? Paul says, I've, you know, the Apostle Paul, I think you can make the argument, is probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. Just my biased opinion, but I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to take that debate up with somebody sometime. Is there a Christian who is better and more faithful than the Apostle Paul? And yet he himself admitted he was not perfect. He says, I, not that I've already obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on. I press on. I press into it. I, I'm like in a race. I'm, I'm leaning forward. And so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So this kind of indicates some holy striving going on, some work and effort and and expended in the pursuit of purification. Uh, John, another, okay, if you don't agree with me about Paul, maybe you'll say John's the most righteous apostle. Okay, well, all right, John, what does John say? Well, every man that has his hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Beautiful verse here because he's talking about both sides of sanctification. He is pure. That's his position, right? We are made pure in Christ. We have a position of purity. But yet we are in the action of purifying. I, I use the King James word here because I love this ETH ending. Every time you read an ETH ending in your King James Bible, it, it, it's indicating a continual present action. Okay, So 
He's in the action of purifying himself. You could put it that way. All right, so you're both positionally, and yet you're progressing. These truths have to be held in tension in the scriptures, or otherwise you're going to get, um, perhaps get a little bit confused about what's going on here. Is perfection possible? Well, the witness of scripture tells us that we should not claim to have no sin at all. Some people might say, I've never sinned. Uh, that triggered for me. Um, you guys remember Lee Greenbaum's uh, Spirit in the Sky, that old song from the 60s or 70s or whatever? He says, I, I've, I've never sinned in that, in that song. He says that. And it strikes you. He's like, what? wait, what? But that's how some people think. They think they're just completely perfect. I've never sinned. I've never had a moment of weakness. Well, the witness of Scripture tells us we should be careful not to claim this, that we have no sin at all. Because in doing so, we're demonstrating a couple things. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8-10. through 10. It says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It goes on to say, if we confess our sins, that presumes that, there, that we as Christians will continue to struggle. But yet there's a means of confession here, the means of God's way of dealing with ongoing sin. We confess, agree with God. And he is faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse. See, there's still an ongoing work of cleansing happening here. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, that's pretty clear that scripture teaches that while Christians do not make it a practice to keep on sinning or to engage in habitual sins without confession or repentance, it does not mean that we can realize perfection in this lifetime. Uh, There's also the witness of the apostles, the testimony of the apostles. I already told you about Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Peter, uh, Paul says he's not already perfect. He's not arrived yet. He's not having already laid hold of it, he says. But this one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead, and I press on. So in the Christian life, the most important evidence of your sanctification is that you're pressing into it, you're advancing, you're continuing going after um, the battle with sin. You're pressing on and enduring and perseverance and... Um, continue to work out your salvation in the sense that God is already working so you work okay and then lastly here uh, if you believe in perfection you have to change the idea of sin change the definition of sin you think sin is just something external to you and that if I just prevent myself from murdering somebody or coveting something or lying if I could just prevent myself from doing those things then I have attained a sense of perfection And that's not what sin is. Sin is not entirely something external to you. Sin is something internal. It's not just sins that you commit. It's also the things that you omit. So to be entirely perfect, you'd have to be, you have to be willing to say that I have not failed to complete everything that God has positively commanded me to do. I've not failed in any way to love my neighbor as I love myself. I've not failed in any way to worship God in spirit and in truth in, that fullest, in the fullest sense. I've not failed to work out my duties towards God in, in a positive way. In, sense, in a sense, they change the definition to mean only abstaining from those things that are observable and external to me by not touching or t- t- not, not handling or not being involved with. I've avoided those things, so therefore, that's how they come by the idea of perfection. Whereas definition of sin tells us that these are, there are sins that are things that are done in the inner man, in the inner heart. <clears throat> Affections that are not pure and right. So the delusion of perfectionism can only be maintained when you have a deficient definition of sin and a limited scope of how one may go about committing it. And you also have to change the definition of perfect. The definition of perfect is not sinless. 
is simply completion or maturity. When someone, when Scripture calls us to become perfect, as God is perfect, it is not saying that we must become essentially sinless like God is, but we should be trying to become like God in all of his attributes and his character and his affections and the things that he cares about and the things that he is all about. We are to make be complete in our likeness, made complete in our likeness to him. Okay? <clears throat> so to grow... We're growing into adulthood spiritually, making up what is spiritually lacking. <clears throat> um, Burkhauer says, perfectionism is a premature seizure of the glory that will be. Someday, glory to God, we will be made perfect. Right? Do you look forward to that day? Does that even, does that thrill your soul to think of that? Someday I'll be in heaven, I'll be before God, and I'll have no more battles, no more uh, tendencies to give in to temptation and sin. All of that's going to be completely eradicated in the future state. He says that if you try to attain perfectionism, it's going to irrevocably lead to nomism. Now, nomism is another word for legalism. People who believe in perfectionism will eventually derail into law-keeping and and works-affected sanctification they're only going to think in terms of what can i do what can i do what can i do they're going to work like it, like their salvation depends upon it okay because you're trying to be perfect and that's a dangerous thought now you may not find many people who have full-blown fully orbed perfectionist ideas but you'll find people who are legalists and have perfectionist tendencies and um, i'll say that this has been something i've struggled with myself what is perfectionism? And I may not believe that I can be perfect, but I live like, I'm, like I can be. Um, scripture tells us that there's a perfective sanctification. And in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Okay? Lots of verses about this. It says that we will be made perfect at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That's in the future yet. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, I pray that God of peace himself will sanctify you entirely. When? That you would be your spirit, your soul, and body would be preserved complete without blame. When? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be sanctified entirely, but not now. At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a perfective sanctification that is still yet future to you. And um, I, I, we've got to understand those three. If you start to overlap them or misunderstand the categories of what Scripture is saying, you're going to come up with entirely different teachings about What's God's goal for you? How do you go about accomplishing those goals? You can become very discouraged, depressed, and anxious if you think your perfection is something that is up to you. It's something that you have to work for instead. Or if you're looking for some experience that's going to just simply solve the problem of your life, you need to instead recognize that God has laid out this progressive plan uh, uh, that he's going to change you over the progress of your lifetime and that um, your duties before him are to work because he's already at work. You are to be what you already are in Christ. And you will be what you've already, you will be what you are trying to become in the future. So their success is, 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 is not just possible, it's guaranteed in the Christian understanding of sanctification. Father, I thank you for the time we've been in your word. I pray that you help us now to just uh, keep these categories clear in our minds as we move forward next week into talking about how to actually... Um, have victory over patterns of sin in our lives, to use your scriptures and to think through them and to apply them and to see your work, the, po- the power of your Holy Spirit accomplishing fruitful maturity in us. And we ask for all this help, Lord, by your grace and through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.